1: Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone. I ordinarily say I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University, but during COVID I'm coming to you live from my house. Uh, So if you hear any noises in the background, that might be my daughter, might be my wife, Um, but uh, we're all managing best as we can in these days. I'm here today with the author of just a fascinating book on baseball in Taiwan. This is Uh, John Harney, he's an associate professor of history and the chair of the Asian Studies Program at Center College, and he's also the author of Baseball in Taiwan and Cultural Identity, um, 1895 to 1968, pardon me, the Empire of Infields: Baseball in Taiwan and Cultural Identity, 1895 to 1968, um, out with the University of Nebraska Press in 2019. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us, John. Thanks for having me, Keith. It's great to be here. Oh, John, I, I do, um, as I told you in, in our quick convo before we started, I, I really love this book uh, for a variety of reasons, um, but mostly because I, I think um, Taiwan is just a fascinating sports history. And most of us, even people who work in the field of sports history, don't know very much about it. Uh, so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit how you got interested in, in Taiwanese sports history.
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I make uh, the very silly joke with my students at the beginning of my modern China, modern Japan classes. They can tell from the accent that I'm from, you know, the Greater Beijing area, or from like Central Taipei or something. But um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm from the south of Ireland originally. I'm from the city of Limerick. But um, when I was about nine or ten, we moved to the Philippines for a few years um, for my father's work. And you know, I you know, an Irish boy growing up in the 1980s. That was my first, you know, real understanding that Asia was a real place. I mean, I know it sounds a bit silly, especially to Asianists, this thing, but, you know, it, my whole world at that time was um, was Ireland, you know, and and so I was in the Philippines, of course, Filipino friends, Filipino schools and everything, and just had my eyes opened to Asian history. Um, and years later, when I went to undergraduate at University College Cork, um, I kind of, there weren't really, there wasn't much in the way of Asian history at the time on the books. So I did a bunch of these independent studies and things like that. To do papers and in the interim my father um, had actually gotten work in taiwan so um i ended up uh, this was you know getting towards the end of the 1990s now and uh, like a lot of people at that time uh you know my father was very convinced that i should really learn chinese um the chinese language so that i would have some kind of a a job you know when you're when your son is 21 and seems to really enjoy college and hasn't shown any interest in anything that isn't college just yet. He's <laughs> starting to worry. So I went to uh university of Sheffield, uh, uh for a year, the school of East Asian studies it was a great experience, uh, largely to kind of, to get my Chinese language stuff started. Um, but also, um, with, with kind of maybe half an eye to the PhD, but certainly an eye towards living in Taiwan after that, at that point I'd been to Taiwan a few times and, um, um, you know, and I knew the, I knew the place and, and I was interested in going and that's what I did after I got the MA, I went and lived in Taiwan for a few years, and ha- had some great times there. Um, and while I was there, you know, I would occasionally, you know, in Taiwan, in present day Taiwan, Taiwanese politics is absolutely fascinating. You know, it's an extremely healthy democracy, not that we like to be like the great democracies, but you know, it's, it's, it, they're in very, very good shape. Um, you know, they democratized in the early 1990s, late 80s going into the 1990s and, um, Although it's a very, very complex political environment, you kind of have these two broad camps that uh, people refer to as Pan Green and Pan Blue. And and the Pan Blue is kind of a, a coalition that includes the kind of the political successors of Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists, basically the people who fled from the communists in the 1940s to the island of Taiwan. And Pan Green, very, very broadly speaking, um, you know, kind of represents people who are descended from um, ethnic Chinese who'd already been on the island. This is covered in the book, the Bunsheng and Weisheng thing we might talk about later, um, and who are, some of whom, are sympathetic to Taiwanese independence. And uh, for people listening who aren't terribly familiar with the, with the Taiwanese situation, Taiwanese de- if Taiwan were to, to declare independence today, for example, um, theoretically, uh, the People's Republic of China, that's mainland China, would declare war on them immediately. At least that's what Beijing has said consistently for since 1949 so um so so that that was kind of you know I, i'm kind of in you know engaged in this and people speak different languages depending on political affiliation sometimes and um some of these friends would say to me you know you're just like our, our, the irish are just like the taiwanese you know small island big neighbor uh they bully us you know we know exactly what you know we know exactly what you're what you're doing you know what what your experience has been and i would go yeah you know that's right. You know, like small islands and small <laughs> islands with large neighbors, you know, must stick together. So, you know, a couple of years go by and I decide to to go for the Ph.D. And I'm at the University of Texas and um, uh, which is also a fantastic experience. I was very lucky with my educational experiences. And um, I had, you know, they ask you when you go in, you know, what you want to do. And I was kind of it was pretty terrible. It's like, just please accept me. You know, I <laughs> kind of do whatever. But there was definitely this idea of uh, Taiwan in the Cold War broadly understood you know um and then as the years went by i got really interested in the culture revolution from 1966 to 1976 in particular state propaganda and mass movements and kind of mob rule you know what seems like an intellectually pure idea translating to mob rule and everything else and my advisor who was who was great uh, dr Lee Huayin in texas um he kind of sat me down and was like you know the culture evolution is kind of a double whammy in that um, researching it is quite complicated because there are certain things the government in China is okay with you going into and certain things they're not. But it was also certainly at this time, about 10, 15 years ago, it was really hot. Like, there's a lot of things coming out all the time. And I suppose I wasn't picking up on it at the time, but he was gently letting me know that I wasn't really producing work that was good enough to stand out in that particular topic just yet. And I was kind of flailing. And a friend of mine, uh, Jared Diener, um, said to be in a hallway in Burdine, on the University of Texas at Austin campus for the Longhorns listening, he's like, so why did the Taiwanese play baseball? And I did not have a good answer for him at all. Um, uh, And the more I thought about it, the more intrigued I got. And my dissertation ended up being um, actually a kind of a discussion of Gaelic games in Ireland and baseball in Taiwan. And I kind of wanted to take that thing that these friends would kind of with their tongue in their cheek say to me about the two islands being so similar, I kind of wanted to look, well, how does this translate into sports in Ireland? You know, Gaelic games uh, were a huge element um, and still are a huge element um, of expressions of Irish nationalism and very specific kind of nationalist narratives of the past in Ireland. Um, And I, you know, looked into Taiwan and I, I, my book at least concludes that just hasn't been the case in Taiwan. At least it wasn't the case until the 1970s or eighties and even then it's Very, very complicated. And so comparing the two things of Ireland almost being one of the strongest examples of this classic sports history dynamic of the colonized turning the tables on the colonizer, albeit on the playing field, Um, that just wasn't something I was seeing in Taiwan. And that's where the dissertation came from. And along the way, then over the years becoming a book, um, you know, uh, I was, you know, reaching out to different publishers and Rob Taylor at Nebraska, who's been a huge help editor um we were discussing it and eventually he said you know I'd really like it if you picked one of the two countries I just don't really think it works as a book as this dual comparison and i i replied to him and said no you don't understand that's my whole vision man you know this is the, <laughs> this is my whole <laughs> the whole point but of course i wasn't actually trained at the postgraduate level in irish history i mean i'm 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 confident with the dissertation i think i did you know i certainly did a, a good job and everything but um the taiwan stuff that's actually that's my home field, as it were, to keep the sporting analogy. Um, and I was indignant, you know. So a year later, he gets an email from me. Hey, Rob, so listen, I've, I've retooled the project. Now it's just a Taiwan book. Um, I had kind of along the way, I'd kind of seen what he was getting at. Um, and that's the book we have. And um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. There's, there's this tiny, tiny little remainders of that uh, early DNA of the Irish comparison dotted here and there. But you end up with the Taiwan book.
1: Yeah, you can certainly see um, uh, occasional references to the GA and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, now that you explain it to me this way, I'm I'm amazed at how much it must have changed uh, between the dissertation <laughs> and the book, uh, because um, that it it is entirely obviously just a, t- a Taiwan project. Your discussion of these different political camps, though, um, made me think of. Um, one of the things that you do really well in your work, which I think a lot of sports histories um, don't do that well, which is situated within a kind of broader historiography. And in some ways, maybe that's because of the the people that you're writing against or writing with as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you can, you can, you can put yourself into that discussion because it seems like you're writing against a very, um, I don't uh, What What's the way I want to say it? A very powerful trend of situating baseball within this history of resistance to colonialism. And right. you're, you're writing against that, which is, a, I think, a, against a, a kind of broad stream of
0: of studies that we see all <laughs> around the world and not just in Taiwan. Yeah, it was, Um. you know, everyone, everyone says the introduction is so important when you're writing a book. And in this book it ends up, it was, it was an absolute bear because one of the challenges the whole time is I kind of ended up, I kind of ended up for a while, it felt like I was proving a negative, which of course is not a place you want to be in when you're writing. Um, You know, oh, that's normally the case, but it isn't here. And so you have to try and frame it much more assertively in order to be engaging and and convincing and everything else. Um, I think one of the fascinating things about, um, baseball in Taiwan is that actually there there is stuff there to read. You have uh, playing in isolation by Eugene Wei, which is also in Nebraska, which is a great book. And uh, he, he met with me in Taiwan um, and was extremely kind and very helpful. Um, And his book is particularly good on looking at kind of, you know, the historical background to the little league glory years, you know, in particular of the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, And he really is kind of, focused on that kind of context so early on i was comfortable with uh book because it's a good book but he kind of goes past the japanese stuff he chose you know to go straight to the kind of the um the mid to late century stuff and i actually was always interested in that kind of 1895 to 1940 um 1949 period myself 1945 1949 period um but but also you know he's really he was he was a You know, his work was important to me in the sense and speaking to me personally in the sense of particularly in the 1910s where the Japanese didn't want the Taiwanese involved in the game at all. Um, and, And I think he and I probably feel a little bit differently how that kind of plays out. But we broadly agree that it's not local Taiwanese people are not really being involved in the game yet until the 1920s. And so in that sense, I really was writing with him in a big way. But then my book kind of talks about that Japanese period in much more detail. Um, that he does, and then Andrew Morris wrote a very good book um, called "Colonial Project National Game," um, which I think is excellent, and you know co- covers basically the entire 20th century. Um, and and he, I think, I guess um, Morris and I um, differ mostly on this idea of you know he he phrases it in this context or he contextualizes it in glocalization and this idea of kind of you know um, sport in uh, baseball rather in Taiwan as an example of this globalization that is also being turned to local interests and in particular in Taiwan kind of evolving into this national game Um, and I would differ with them and I just I don't really um, I don't really see it Um, I don't see baseball emerging as this national game really until the 1970s and even then in the 1970s though my book kind of My book ends in 1968 for a bunch of reasons, partly because of this divide. Even then in the 1970s, um, you're looking at a nationalism that's kind of being projected both by Chiang Kai-shek, who dies in 1975, and his immediate successors as a kind of a free China, you know, a Cold War, uh, pro-US, Chinese government type nationalism uh, versus this kind of growing um, Taiwanese nationalism, that kind of pan-green idea, you know, this Taiwan du-li in Chinese, Taiwanese uh, independence. And it's really, it's really complex. And I think the reason it's complex and the fascinating thing about it is there's lots to read if you happen to be able to read Chinese. There's actually quite a bunch, good bunch of writing in Chinese in Taiwan on Taiwanese baseball, because figuring out what role the Japanese colonial period plays in the evolution of Japanese imper- or sorry, in, in Taiwanese nationalism is a massively complex topic. The Taiwanese intellectuals are still grappling with. And baseball is front and center in that discussion because people are going to games, uh, especially youth baseball is a very big deal. So boys are playing in games and girls are playing in games as well. Softball, though not softball as Americans understand it today, it was basically baseball with a softer ball, literally a softer ball. Um, but there's this kind of, um, there's this public nature, this popularization and participation in baseball that is bringing together this Japanese colonial experience with the Taiwanese nationalism that follows. So where I would differ from some is that I I want to see evidence of Taiwanese nationalism as early as possible because I'm sympathetic actually to the cause of Taiwanese nationalism. Um, you know, John Harney, the when he's not being an historian, is a big fan of Taiwanese nationalism. <laughs> um, but and 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 I would love to see I would love to see those sprouts more clearly in the 30s, but I don't. Um and what I really see is um a kind of a shared colonial um, a shared experience between the colonizer and the colonized, and you know, I, I keeping my tongue in my cheek as an Irishman, that's very hard for me to say, you know, um, let alone see or to think about. Um, but that's kind of that's kind of what I see And the, the book. The reason the book ends in 1968, it's really with the what was known as the Hongye victory. There's this team called the Hongye team, the Red Maple Leaf team. Their victory and the subsequent entrance into the Little League World Series the following year by Taiwanese teams. That's that kind of closes the book or at least closes it most of the way on Taiwanese baseball effectively being a subset of Japanese baseball. But until 1968, I think it very much is. And that's interesting because the empire of Japan, you know, ceases to exist in incredibly dramatic fashion in 1945. And yet I would argue that that kind of shared dynamic of Taiwanese baseball as part of a broader Japanese experience um, continues for a couple of decades beyond that. And and that's not to say that Taiwanese baseball is in some way inferior, you know, culturally or anything else. Um, but that's really the that's what I identified in my research was this is what's happening. This is something happening, you know, um simultaneously um in Japan and Taiwan, um, which which is tough, right? Because the Japanese imperialists um were not rays of sunshine through their empire. God forgive me, that's a very you know overly polite way of putting it. Um but at least in the field of in the field of baseball, um, Taiwanese baseball, even as it branched out into becoming its own thing, was participating in a participating in a universe that the Japanese baseball world had defined. And the Japanese baseball, you know, using a vocabulary the Japanese baseball world had kind of written. Um and that, that was really what jumped out to me. And I think that's where I differ fairly significantly from from others. And I think where Taiwan is really interesting, because like I say, Ireland, for example, is a fascinating case, and Ireland is arguably the 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 best example of of this kind of this issue of the colonized turning against the colonizer and I, I joke with my students all the time my undergraduates you know that i i i would cheer on trinidad and tobago versus england and tiddlywings you know like and you know that's just it's just a silly goofy way a vestigial way of kind of participating in that dynamic you know many years after i mean i don't i hold nothing against that country at all apart from the the silly cheap jokes <laughs> um and 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 uh and it just doesn't happen in taiwan a little a little in that a little um anecdote i have which of course is your know, definition of anecdotal uh, evidence i remember years ago going to a basketball game uh in taipei and it was taiwan versus korea and um my friend uh was really getting aggravated and they said what's the problem He's like, i don't like koreans i said what what? what? I said, surely alone, even just being, you know, the colonial subject of the Japanese, this is the historian thinking, right? There's some sense of brotherhood and thinking of the Irish and the Scots here, you know, or something. And he goes, nah, <laughs> he just mm-hmm. had this, you know, very low grade issue. And he said, well, what about the Japanese? They must drive you crazy. I don't care about them. And that was just my experience uh, in Taiwan. There was so, there was none of that. And, and the nice thing about sports is the animosity gets to be, I mean, it's all fun and games, you know, literally and figuratively, right? But I wasn't seeing that in Taiwan, and, and I think my research bore out that you just you're not seeing it historically.
1: Yeah, that was. I, I think there's a few uh, places where you have a very nice turn of phrase about um, this being a, a project looking at genesis rather than at resistance, which I thought was a, an interesting way of putting it. I, I wonder if you can talk about then some of the origins of of, of baseball in Taiwan. You've alluded to it um, a little bit already uh, as being. Mm-hmm. Uh, brought by the Japanese uh, and as being for a long time, a kind of a a kind of game that was almost exclusively uh, or was exclusively Japanese and and not as part of this broader colonial project. So I wonder, tell us a little bit about um, how baseball arrived in Taiwan and and what was what 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 maybe even, you know, was the um, purpose of baseball within this kind of broader Japanese empire before the 1920s?
0: Right. Um. Well, it's kind of all wrapped up in Japan's role, as it were, as a modernizer, right, uh, in the region, which which is a really kind of fraught topic for a lot of reasons. So for example, there's certainly lots of Western observers at the very, very beginning of the 20th century who really kind of see the Japanese as a beacon of enlightenment thought, you know, and, and, and modern ideas and institutional modernization, not just in Japan, but in the places they've colonized. And so, I mean, a, a great example of this would be somewhere like, I mean, you know, Korea and Taiwan are very different colonies of Japan in that way, where there's there's immense um, reservoirs of ill-feeling, or, or I should say it's a very complex relationship between um, Korea, uh, South Korea and Japan, or North Korea also, of course, but Korean people and Japan. Um, and so that, that's why, you know, it's difficult to, you don't want to fall into the trap of kind of giving the Japanese credit, you know, for being this modernizing force, you don't want to fall into the trap methodologically but there's very, very important kind of emotional and political reasons you wouldn't want to fall into the trap. But there's this really complex idea of like, what is a state versus what is a nation? I mean, in East Asia, more broadly, um, the extensive colonization by the Western powers in China and Japan in the 19th century really was part of a um, a complex collection of inputs, you know, that that creates this, in China's case, a Chinese-led, and in Japan's case, a Japanese-led intellectual um, and discursive journey for what these identity kind of concepts mean. And in the Japanese concept, very famously, lots of people learn this in secondary school or in um, undergraduate history. I think every world history class talks about the Meiji restoration of 1868, where the Tokugawa shogunate, the, the old, you know quote unquote, feudal um, system, is toppled and replaced with a new system which, over the course of the next three to four decades, very intentionally emulates. Um, what, they, what were the great powers of the time. And, and, of course, the greatest power at that particular time in the 1860s, 1870s was, was Britain, the British Empire. So um, the Japanese uh, borrow heavily from British and German ideas in terms of how to industrialize their country and all these other things, but also uh, particularly in, in how to build up a new educational system. And the educational system uh, is heavily intertwined with baseball early on. So, you know, we often talk about, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of Americans, I think, assume that baseball comes to Japan from Americans. Um, And there's certainly Horace Wilson is this famous, you know, supposed father of baseball, this American teacher who's hitting a ball with a bat out in the quad and some young Japanese men approach him and go, what are you doing? And and, and baseball spreads, because it is the one true sport, I suppose. If you're a baseball fan, it spreads like wildfire. And there's some truth to that. Horace Wilson was in Japan and he definitely helped popularize the game. But you also have, you know, You know, uh, uh, lots and lots of Japanese people, including Japanese people coming back from the United States who are working there as engineers and as part of the broader Japanese project to learn from American and British industry um, and American corporate structures and things like that. You have these Japanese people coming back um, and and, uh, bringing back, you know, uh, bats and balls and rule books and everything else. So you end up with a game of baseball in Japan. Which is, in terms of the rule set, distance between bases, size of the field, or you know, potential size of the field, all these things is identical to American baseball in every way. There, there is no, there is no shaking up of the rules. A very, very, you know, very, very little shaking up of the rules. Um, and the Japanese, you know. It becomes genuinely popular in Japan, but it becomes tied, tied into education as part of this belief in kind of building up the kind of the body of the country, right? Which is a very, very common belief in the 19th century. So I'm sure, you know, it's is very common topic in sports history. And, and baseball kind of, you know, um, uh, floats to the top is the most obvious thing. So when Taiwan becomes a colony of Japan in 1895, it does so because of a war between the Japanese and the Chinese effectively over who gets to be the unofficial um, protector of Korea. Um, And the Japanese win that war very, very, uh, very quickly um, and very efficiently. And it's, at least for some people, it's seen as evidence of kind of superiority of Western-style modernization, military, and everything else. And as they begin to, it takes a couple of years to pacify the island of Taiwan. And the the main economic uh, benefit of acquiring the island of Taiwan is its sugar, to a large extent, um, and there are other kind of resources that can be managed. And so the Japanese send out basically envoys of their imperial machine. And we see this in Taiwan, we see it in Korea, and we see it later on in Manchuria in the 1930s. There is a heavy kind of a capitalist bent to this. And so there's a lot of um, Japanese companies are coming to Taiwan, and they're bringing with them, of course, their employees. Um, and the Japanese government then wants to install a education system that is similar to uh, what's back in Japan. And my book talks about this at length early on. Um, And so part of the education system is going to be this kind of, you know, physical exercise, you know, strengthening the populace kind of thing. Now, early on in Taiwan, that takes the form of calisthenics and other kinds of things, various kinds of sports. Funnily enough, um, at least from some Japanese principals of Japanese colonial schools, there's a reluctance to have baseball teams, or there's kind of a discouraging of baseball teams. Baseball is kind of seen as potentially a distraction to what they're otherwise trying to do. But adult Japanese men, typically young adult Japanese men, um, start playing the games in teams that represent their companies, um, in teams that um, represent certain kind of occupations, such as um, people who are in teacher training colleges, for example. And then the students in the teacher training colleges who are, you know, just, just older than high school students start to invite, you know, high school students to play them, high school seniors and things like that. And by 1915, you have an association that's set up in Taiwan. Um, to 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 organize tournaments and to organize to, and to schedule and host organized play between all these different teams, like the Taiwan Sugar or Taiwan Sugar Company, um, you know the banking association, you know all these different the railway team. There's all these different kind of corporate slash um, uh, occupation affiliation teams, and they start playing each other. But that organization, that association, is modeled completely on what the Japanese association is because everybody playing at this point is Japanese. You have um, locally born people, Taiwanese born people are kind of around. And the way the education system worked, it kind of funneled the children of the colonial Japanese down one avenue and Taiwanese down another. Um, we believe that there was a local Taiwanese person played played a game in 1915, and then you have the the two men, the two Lees in 1919. And it's a safe assumption that there were others. Um, but we only have, literally, before, 19, before the early 1920s, there are three people, three Taiwanese men, documented to have played the game at all. Otherwise, it was entirely um, a Japanese thing, and driven largely, actually, by the Japanese private sector. As that can be understood, of course, the private sector was very much hand-in-hand with the imperial government, but, but that's effectively where these guys were coming from. We took
1: it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. I, I wish we had infinite amount of time to talk. You have a great um, thinking about questions of modernization. You've got a great uh, set of parallel chapters in some ways discussing uh, the Waseda. I'm, pardon any listeners for my mispronunciation of words in either Japanese or, um, or uh, any of the various dialects of Chinese that are discussed in your book. Um, but the Waseda team in their, in their um, going to the United States which uh, you know, I wish we could talk more about, but um, but let's move on and talk a little bit more about the, um, you know baseball in in Taiwan specifically. If if this modernization is is um, working in one way as we'll say it goes to the U.S., it seems to be working in the exact opposite way in terms of logics of modernization and exoticism when it comes to to Taiwan. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about when do. Um, Taiwanese people. And maybe you can give us a bit of a, a discussion of who, who are Taiwanese people at this time, because that's, well, it seems <laughs> self-evident isn't, <laughs> isn't in right, right, way right. Um, When okay. they start playing baseball and tell us a little bit about um, um, whats Seda in, 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 Ta- in Taiwan, and also maybe this uh, NOCO team. It's, it's-
0: sure. Sure. So, um, there's, there, well, God, there's a lot going on. This is the problem with, I mean, every society is complicated, but um, in short, um, the vast majority of Taiwanese at this time, uh, people born in Taiwan in the 1920s, right? The vast majority are like, you know, about 90% or above are, um, are they're ethnically Chinese. They are the descendants of people who have moved to the island from uh, mainland China in the 1500s and afterwards. Um um, what we now call Taiwanese um, is, you know, a dialect of Chinese that is is has similarities to Fujianese and other kind of Southeast Asian, or sorry, Southeast Chinese languages, um, and they have cultural similarities and everything else, uh, particularly the southeast of China, but also parts of China that are further north. So, a small percentage of um, Taiwanese at this time are Aboriginal Taiwanese. Now, um, they are treated both by the chinese taiwanese and the colonial japanese as being a very much kind of an outlier within society and this is a long term problem um, in taiwanese society um in english we would call them aboriginal uh aboriginal taiwanese um or yenzumin in chinese um the older word which in the 1920s would not have been as harsh as it would be to you and me uh, now would be uh, mountain people um or just bansho or just you know just savages was was typically how they'd kind of be uh, described by um, the Japanese and, you know, in, 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 a lot of my research, all of my primary source research, especially obviously for the pre 45 period was in, was in Japanese. And you know, I was really struck by Japanese, um, documents that are kind of, you know, uh, delineating and cataloging things like butterflies and other, you know, flora and fauna of the island of Taiwan. And then you'd see references to Aboriginal Taiwanese kind of in the same, you know, the same vibe, you know, the same voice, you know, um, look at this amazing, uh, look at this amazing feature, um, of, ta- of Taiwan, you know, and in, I, I in the Japanese, sure.
1: I, I just want to interrupt since I'm coming from yeah. Australia. That was also the case in Australia until uh, the 1960s, that indigenous Australians were cataloged along with uh, fauna and uh, right. not people. Uh, <laughs> <so>.
0: <laughs> right. Cause they're natural. Right. And this was something, this was a big thing, you know, Japanese imperialism is really fascinating because, um, as you see in so many examples of imperialism, you have this romanticization of the kind of the edges of the empire and um, Fei Yuan Kleeman, she's, that's her name. She's written about this and she's a couple of excellent books on this uh, where you have these Japanese intellectuals seeing Taiwan as kind of what in English Kleman translates as the South with a capital S, you know, the sense of like this amazing place. As I explained to my students, in the same way you have this, this happening in the West also, or at least with Westerners and places like India and everything, you have these Japanese writers going to you know late 19th century taiwan like oh my god the the savagery and the women walking around with no tops on and oh my god oh what i wouldn't give to be freed of the the, the coils of modernity what i wouldn't give you know to be among the, na- the nature of these people and then they go home to you know their baths and, <laughs> and all the other kind of you know mod cons as it used to be used to be called so you know uh and, and that's kind of something that's really the case between, you know, that's the treatment your Aboriginal Taiwanese are kind of typically receiving. Now, the Aboriginal Taiwanese were also much more vociferous in their resistance to the Japanese um, uh, than the kind of the ethnic Chinese were. And it's, it, it's they're arguably not pacified until a very, very bloody uprising in 1915. And then you have other you have other terrible incidents later on, which only kind of reconfirms in the Japanese imagination. They're savage. Right. And they're 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 untouchable by the civilizing. With with by the Japanese civilizing wand, whereas the 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 um, the ethnic Chinese they can be reached, and so you know, um, Morris talks about this very eloquently in his book on Taiwanese baseball: the difference between raw and cooked. You know, these the, the raw people and the cooked people, and these kind of these very kind of interesting analogies or descriptions of how civilized people are, or are not. So um, so within all that, that all falls then into so what exactly what role is Taiwan supposed to play in the empire of Japan? And there are certainly um, people in Tokyo and other Chinese major cities kind of in the heart of the empire's, uh, you know, neural system, I suppose. Mm -hmm. They very much want something called assimilation. You know, they want to teach Taiwanese people, Japanese, they are interested in them conceivably taking up Japanese religious practice. um, Maybe even eating Japanese food, depending on who you're reading, right. Really getting into this kind of, they are part of the empire. Um, and some of these ideas bear fruit later on in the 1930s, uh, when the Japanese war machine really builds up ideologically in both Korea and Taiwan, people are effectively, you know, are at least theoretically forced to take on Japanese names and register themselves at Shinto shrines and things like this. So that, those are the assimilationists, many of whom in the 1920s are, are, are not advocating for the kind of aggression you're going to see later on. This is a kind of a much, for some of them at least, kind of a wide-eyed inclusion, right, in this wonderful thing. And the other side of the argument, certainly in Taiwan, are the the kind of the coexistence argument. And the coexistence argument certainly works right up until about 1919 or 1920. And coexistence basically says, listen, we should educate local Taiwanese because it's in our interest to have a local population that can read and write and maybe do some good engineering work and do all these things that we need. It's not in our advantage to have them just be, you know, ignored or reject, We have to just take care of them then. So it makes sense to have this kind of collective idea. Um, but we don't think they should be considered the same as citizens of Japan, or like full citizens as it were. The The Japanese heartland is its own thing. And that, at least in Taiwan, and I know a lot more about Taiwan than I do about Korea, um, in Taiwan, this kind of ends up, they kind of compromise a little bit, which is in the 1920s, you see a massive swing back towards the assimilationist idea, but um, local Taiwanese are never really treated the same way that the children of the colonial Japanese are. You know, There's always that difference, and quite a significant difference. And one of the most obvious ways this plays out is in educational opportunities, where for the child of a colonial Japanese person, you can you can probably go to college in Japan if you want, and if you have the ability, whereas for a local Taiwanese, that's very much not likely. Now, in the 1920s, you have this swing towards assimilation, and where you really see that is these, the integration rescript of 1922, And effectively, they they start mixing colonial Japanese and ethnic Chinese students together in elementary schools and primary schools. And and to the extent they existed into the kind of middle and high school systems as well. And the Japanese parents didn't like, at least some Japanese parents really didn't like this at all. And they're very worried about how this might affect their own children's progress and everything else, but they did it. And as a result, you have, you know, Japanese baseball by the early 1920s, or sorry, Taiwanese baseball by the early 1920s is fully established as a sport in schools that are populated by Japanese students, by ethnically Japanese students. Now that those populations are being mixed, baseball, in turn, also becomes a mixed sport. And there's ebbs and flows to that. Um, And certainly, by the mid-1930s, you still have schools, especially in Taipei, that are heavily dominated by Japanese players, uh, ethnic Japanese players, I should say. But you start to see lots and lots of mixing. Now, where do the Aborigines come into this, Aboriginal Taiwanese, I should say, come into this? um i mentioned in the book i mentioned this team Noko, and one of the things that's quite interesting about this whole period i think is that touring has become a thing so the chapter you mentioned you know waseda university alongside lots of other japanese universities were traveling to the united states to play american teams and the the incentive for the japanese then was to kind of to kind of to, to sit at the table with their fellow great powers that was the idea um and for the less militarily minded to kind of to just kind of reaffirm Japan's rightful status as one of kind of the modern countries. But then when they went to send teams to Taiwan, which they did, starting the late 1910s, that was a very different thing. You know, that was kind of the bestowal or the visiting of the civilizers to the place that is in the process of being civilized. And who are the least civilized people? Well, they are these quote-unquote savages, the Aboriginal Taiwanese. So in the mid-1920s, you have this Team Noko, um, which is composed entirely of Aboriginal Taiwanese boys, who basically are very, very good at baseball. And there's all these kinds of, um, you know, myths about them that they were found throwing stones at each other and swinging sticks. And, you know, this, 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 um, they were discovered by an ethnic Chinese guy who just, he, he, he was agog at their raw, natural, um, you know, uh, physical talent. And under Japanese coaching, they learned how to play this game and they were amazing. And they end up actually, they beat a lot of teams in Taiwan and they traveled to Japan where they have a pretty successful tour. And the Japanese media, who consistently described them as being savages in the newspapers, you know, the entire time, also herald them, you know, pictures of, pictures of them in their very nice kind of white suits you put on teenage boys at this time and everything else. And they are just, they are resounding evidence that the system, you know, our project works, you know, um, look at them playing baseball, which as we all know is more or less a Japanese sport, at least in this part of the world. And we taught that to them. And without us, they'd be out in the, they'd be out in the fields, you know, beheading people and things like that. Like that's very much, that's the tone of it. And so that's kind of for those who are inclined to see baseball as a transformative tool actively used by the Japanese, that's kind of the high watermark. Though I would say that there's, and this is going off Eugene Wei's work as well, prior to that, there's a lot of evidence. If the Japanese were big into the idea of using baseball to Japanize people, they weren't consistently that way, you know. But but certainly the reception of Team Noko was just like this is it look look at these look at what these savages can do. This is all because of the success of Japan and of Japanese modernization.
1: Yeah, that was one um, interesting turn in your in your book is how um, maybe more I. Granted, I I haven't read the other works in the field, but you seem to situate it, your interest in Taiwanese baseball within this broader uh, Japanese imperial nation state. And so you have a chapter, um, a couple chapters that follow uh, this uh, that look at both. And here again, I'm going to be murdering <laughs> words. Um, the the stadium at Koshien and its importance uh-huh. in this broader Japanese imperial pro- project, and then the the this, the Kano team. And and this um, success of that team and potentially its role in form, uh, fomenting a kind of nascent Taiwanese identity. So I wonder if you can talk about um, mm-hmm. as as Taiwanese people start to play baseball uh, in larger numbers and get better at it, how that helped them situate themselves within this broader imperial frame.
0: Yeah. So you know, it's it's I think it raises a whole bunch of interesting questions about um it raises, sorry i'm sorry about that <laughs> <laughs> no technology it raises a whole bunch of interesting questions about you know the structure of um tournament play um an organized play and 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 how that works you know so koshien um is a is a tournament uh, it's it's a, it's the japanese you know national high school baseball tournament it goes back to 1915 and in 1924 they move it to the koshien stadium um uh where where it's been ever since and it's this it's this major it's not just how do i put it it's not just where the best high school baseball in japan is played it, it, it's an emotional center you know I, I when i teach my sports classes at a center i often talk students through to this day it's a tradition for the losing team in the koshien final to go to the infield and brush dirt take dirt from the infield into their caps to take home as a memo as a memory of the time they reached the stadium you know, and and they're doing it. These are like 17 year old men, boys, young men in tears, right? There's, there's massive emotional catharsis. Oh my God, we got all the way and we lost and they're taking the dirt home. And as I show my students, I love showing you these pictures of the Japanese photographers getting all of it, you know, like this is the media machine, right? Um, but Koshien certainly from 1924 on and really before that is, is already a part of this kind of media machine, you know, youth baseball was a big thing in Japan. Um, Collegiate baseball was a huge, huge deal. Um, and high school baseball, particularly centered on Koshien, got a lot of coverage and was really taken very, very seriously. And so in Taiwan, the structures they build for youth baseball, to a large extent, mirror um, what's happening in Japan. Now, some of this is happening because the, the Taiwanese educational system has been imposed by the Japanese, and they're looking to replicate the educational system that they have. And baseball has this really important role in that. But then the other part of it then is is the extent to which, you know, getting to Japan is this hugely um, prestigious thing. And so, you know, arguably the most famous baseball team in Taiwanese history, or certainly probably tied for the most famous, is the Kano team of the 1930s, which is famous for a couple of reasons. Historians love that team because the really successful Kano team was one third ethnic Japanese, one third ethnic Chinese, and one third um, Aboriginal Taiwanese, so it's this really fascinating kind of example of of the kind of mixing that's going on at this youth baseball um, level. And the Kano team gets to the final of the whole thing, and they lose the final. It's this big. It's this big moment. Um, I think th- how this helps us understand a Taiwanese participation in a broader Japanese practice comes down, I think, maybe to how you see those tournaments. So, for example. Uh, the, basically, Taiwan had its own tournament, the all-island the All Taiwan tournament. And if you won that, that was a qualifier to get you into um, the national tournament in Japan. And they also accepted the winner of the Korean tournament and eventually the winner of the Manchurian tournament. And so, you know, is that similar to, you know, the English League champions playing in the Champions League the following year, you know? Or is it like the regional NCAA, NCAA tournament going into the, you know, going into the final, you know, the, final, the Sweet 16, final four and so on? Like those, those are pretty nuanced, but I think important differences. Um, and I think for me, it was just hard to separate the reality of, you know, if you played baseball in Taiwan, if you're a 14-year-old, 15-year-old boy playing youth baseball in Taiwan, getting to that tournament and playing in that stadium is the most prestigious thing you could possibly achieve. It's going to be the biggest deal of your young athletic career. And the same is true for a boy your age in the city of Tokyo. Now, of course, that doesn't mean you're having the same experiences, but I couldn't get past the reality that the Japanese had successfully, not always consciously, not always deliberately, but they'd successfully built up and defined what effectively was the baseball universe. And I don't think you could escape participating in that as a young as a young Taiwanese ball player
1: so um, I think we have to turn to the post-war although um, i i i sympathize and i encourage <laughs> um, readers to engage with i think um, what what is um, an incredibly rich first half of your book in some way uh, which deserves more time but but since you talk about the post war, we should talk about that too. Um, sure.
0: Yeah. I did warn so. you, Keith, that I like to talk, so
1: No, 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 no. That's not it at all. I just there's <laughs> other um I also research in the that in the interwar period and I'm, i think about sport within frames of empires a lot. So it, it there's more areas I could go into, but I try to avoid <laughs> I try to avoid just talking about my work <laughs> when I interview other people. <laughs> Um, so, of course, Japanese Empire collapses in the end of World War II, and there's this, um, there's this retrocession, which I hope you can explain a little bit, and then maybe sure. give us a little bit of the discussion of of what the Gomendang and Chiang Kai-shek, um, what they're doing uh, with relation to baseball, because when before I read the book, I would think, oh, they would think this is a Japanese import that it needs to be mm-hmm. stamped out. Uh, but that's not a, at all what seems to happen. So can you tell us a little bit about about baseball in the Republic of China?
0: Sure. Um, sure. I mean, so first of all, the Republic of China is founded on the 1st of January 1912, um, uh, of course, in mainland China, and is ostensibly the government of China until the successful communist revolution of 1949. And there is certainly evidence of baseball being played in the Republic of China, in mainland China, in the decades up to... The 1940s um, while saying that it certainly wasn't as popular in mainland China as it was in Taiwan and of course part of that is very tragic reasons which is China in the interwar period was a desperately violent place um, and it was you know was, there wasn't a lot of um, room except arguably for a brief 10-year period to be developing these kind of institutions um, and they'd like or it, 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 there's a lot of things China, China experts are listening going wait a minute but I, sh- I should move on but it, there's 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 a lot of reasons that baseball doesn't take off in China the way that it does in mainland China, the way that it does in Taiwan. Um, and so, yes, you know, you kind of would expect the guomindang to treat baseball as a Japanese import, and they kind of largely do. So the whole the whole idea of this word retrocession is used a lot. Um, and effectively, um, at Cairo in 1943, um, it's kind of made clear that Taiwan, of course, when the war is over, Taiwan will be returned to China because Taiwan was a colonial position that had been handed over to the Japanese as at, at the result of a war in 1895. At that time, um, you know, there was a lot of hope in the Allies side. Of course, the Republic of China was part of the Allies, that um, the Kuomintang, the, the nationalists would prevail. Um, certainly, um, there's a lot of skepticism about communism, especially in the United States, but not just the United States on the Allied side. And Roosevelt, before he died, for example, was hopeful that perhaps um, China could act as a, as a, as a kind of, as the guarantor of a trusteeship over this very troubling place, Vietnam, which the French were having a nightmare with, um, and didn't seem to have any kind of answer to going forward. And so there was this hope that maybe, well, free China could take care of that for us, or they could be our partner in Asia. And of course, things didn't work out that way. Chiang Kai-shek, um, is beaten very badly in mainland China. It's, it's, it, by the end of the war, it's desperately one-sided and he kind of flees to Taiwan. And that's the beginning of this kind of, you know, um, government-in-exile kind of phase. And martial law is uh, continued in Taiwan and isn't isn't lifted until the 1980s. And certainly Chiang Kai-shek and his fellow nationalists very famously were aghast um, at what they saw as the successful Japanization of the island of Taiwan. Um, And they probably overrated how successful the Japanese were. Um, Certainly there were lots of loan words in the local Taiwanese dialects. And yes, there were definitely local Taiwanese who spoke very, very good Japanese, um, and 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 uh, and there were some certain some Japanese cultural aspects. They probably overestimated how successful the Japanese were, so they they weren't inclined to be um, massively supportive of baseball. Now at the same time they didn't eradicate it either. They didn't stamp it out. If you look at what they did with the language, for example, um, they were vicious um, with with languages. So um, you know, not only was everyone expected to speak Mandarin, they were expected to speak Mandarin in the perfect Beijing dialect, regardless of what language they spoke at home. Um, And there's fantastic literature on exactly that, on the national language programs of the post-war period. Baseball seems to have gotten a bit of a pass. Now, they definitely preferred basketball, they built a huge stadium for basketball in the middle of Taipei and they kind of wanted people to play basketball um, and they were successful to a point. Basketball is very popular in Taiwan now. But they kind of left baseball alone and and I, my theory is probably that the book is a bit more careful. Um, I think it was a mixture of maybe not fully giving credence to the value that sport could have in that regard. Um, but also, of course, the, the, the real priority for Chiang Kai-shek is allyship with the United States and so he's very happy to celebrate baseball in the context of it being a shared pastime between the Americans and the Taiwanese or between the Chinese as Chiang Kai-shek would see it. He wouldn't acknowledge his Taiwanese identity at all, at all, at all. So you have these, you know, these, these exhibition games between local Taiwanese and American servicemen and things like that. And uh, Taiwan sends teams to play the Philippines and South Korea and Japan basically, you know, all the American allies in East Asia, East and Southeast Asia are playing each other in baseball for years and years to come after this and other sports as well, of course, um, but also in baseball. I think what's interesting, you know, one of my chapters opens up with um, this, uh, this goal chess game between these two yeah, Chinese. Was really born interesting. Yeah. And, you know, and so you have this, this young master who's, Kind of the up and coming, he had, you know, he had, you know, if you take your shot at the king, you best not miss kind of thing. Well, he took a shot at the king and he hit him, you know. And so they're on the second of what ended up being this kind of three, this three game series over their careers that really made uh, Rid Kaiho's kind of name. And the older master turns to him in the middle of the game and says, or in the middle of the break and says, can we extend the break and watch some of this Shen tournament on the TV? And you know, I'm I'm using the Chinese language newspaper, and not just Chinese language newspaper in Taiwan, but the one that was owned by the Nationalist Party, right? And they they share this little anecdote, but they're kind of like, and they play this this game baseball. Allow me to explain to you, reader, what's going on here and why this is important. And it's hilarious because, of course, any Taiwanese reader, um, uh, certainly an, an adult, knows exactly what cushion is. You know, is fully aware of what cushion is, but there's this um, there's this this need to pretend. Oh, this it's this thing we do because the Americans like it and the Japanese like it. It's you, you wouldn't it's kind of new, you know. There's this fascinating pretense um that it wasn't actually there before the, the GMD came. But I suppose being willing to perform that pretense saves it from being purged in some way. In in for example, ways they tried to purge the language. Of course, maybe they accidentally made the right decision, because of course purging the language didn't work out very well for them either, because these things are much easier conceived than achieved, you know?
1: Yeah, this this um these chapters here, for me, in the post-war, also had their had their very interesting turns as you're navigating between, uh, and I won't even try to pronounce these the, these two words, but the um, the the ethnic Chinese population who mm-hmm. uh, inhabited Taiwan before 1945 versus the um, the refugees, for want of a better word, maybe, who come to Taiwan after um, the defeat of the Republic of China um, or during the 1940s. Um, as they're as they're both trying to fight for what their own identity as this island will be, um, and and that's being reflected in their relationship with the United States. One of the best anecdotes for me in the book was them purging the words pitcher and catcher. <laughs> these <laughs> these Japanese kind of a, a yeah. Japanese word, words borrowed from the American, which are then purged yeah. by the Republic of China. <laughs> Uh, but then also there's, there's this, I think, rich continuation of this empire that doesn't exist anymore. And maybe can you tell right. us a little bit about, oh, and, and how, yeah. how he fits into this whole story? Cause that was, he was a fascinating character. And I, I, I want to know more about these American <laughs> players in Japan who weren't being pitched to, so they couldn't break any of his oh, records.
0: Yeah. You know, so, um. So I, I'll do the Xiongren, Wai Weishengren thing first. So you have Bunshengren, people of this province; Weishengren, people of the outer province. And these are largely colloquial terms that are used by Taiwanese people to describe people whose families were there before 1949. Uh, the Bunshengren, the this province people, and the people who've been there since. So, like when I lived in Taiwan, you know, there was this lovely old man. He was the security guard for my building, who I'm pretty sure was the least intimidating human I ever met in my life. But um, you know but we all we all loved him and he spoke i could never understand a word he said and i used to get really um, worried about it because my chinese was getting pretty good you know and my friend said to me oh yeah i don't know what that guy says either you know he's from zhejiang and nobody can understand him you know he's got this super thick um regional you know north central chinese accent you know east central chinese accent um that nobody could understand he came over in the 40s and we're just you know he's just kind of playing you know stringing his time out and a lot of this is kind of colloquial and everything else and um you know, I remember I tell students all the time, my friend Emily, who was definitely a Waisangren, I forget what she was asking one day, but she used the term Zongguoran to describe a Chinese person, which is, that's, that literally means China person. Like that's, that's how you say China person, Chinese person in Chinese. And one of our friends who is definitely a Shangren berated her, don't use that word, use huaren, which is just a, another option for saying Chinese. You could say culturally Chinese or ethnic Chinese as opposed to citizen of the mainland Chinese. And it was all done in jest and everything else, but these are divisions everyone's kind of living with. Um, and you know, Taiwan at the at the turn of the century had this president Chen Shui Bian, who turned out to be corrupt, which was kind of a sad story. And he was a, at least if you were a green supporter, you know, he was he would give these speeches, and his 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 Mandarin Chinese was terrible. I mean, he was so bad. Um, his accent was so thick and weird, and it, that was just his way of signalling to his supporters. I'm a bunch of you know, and so there's all these fascinating ways all this stuff is playing out. Now, on top of that, where on earth the Japanese come into this after it's all over. So today, you know, you can pick up these Chinese language texts in Taiwan that are doing exactly what all academics do, right, which is bring in, particularly bring in the post-structuralists to kind of try and figure out formation of identity and building of identity and connection to that to statehood and everything else. And if you're going to bring those tools in, as some of them are choosing to do, You've got to find a way to think about and talk about Japan, right? Now, in the 1960s, when Osada Haru uh, visits, yeah. Japan is an ally of Taiwan in the Cold War. Both Taiwan and Japan are allies of the United States against, um, against China. And of course, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and his followers, they don't call it Taiwan. It's Republic of China, always, always Republic of China. And... Um, so, and that's how they talk about it publicly. You know, um, we are allies and everything else. In fact, like, there's a primary source, I think this is mentioned in the book, where the Waseda team yet again comes to visit Taiwan and the, there's a local fan organization goes to greet them at the airport. And the newspaper admonishes them for being too enthusiastic. You know? <laughs> and, and it's partly frustrated because, you know, you're not supposed to know who these guys are. You know, like we're introducing you to our allies, the Japanese, and the strange things they have. So, Haru is a fascinating guy then. Wang um, Chungzu is his name in Chinese. Um, He's the uh, he's the home run king uh, in, in international baseball. He has 868 home runs, so he has the record for home runs in professional baseball globally. And uh, he was a hugely important part, arguably the star of the enormously successful Yomuri Giants in the West, that are often called the Tokyo Giants team in the 1960s, who won nine titles in a row. So he was. So by the time he comes to Taiwan, he's kind of he's a big deal. And his father was Chinese, and he had moved to Japan before the, the fleeing of the nationalists to Taiwan, right? So the thing about Haru is he had a passport, he had an ROC passport, Republic of China passport. So theoretically, could be claimed by Taiwan. And he was always really ambiguous about all of this stuff. Now, he did go to Taiwan himself and has continued to visit Taiwan as an older man. He's still alive, still with us today, thankfully. But he's extremely ambiguous and in japan he had all kinds of problems his father married a japanese woman so he's 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 biracial and he has written in various autobiographies about the the uh discrimination he faced as a teenager from japanese coaches who just had a problem with him because he wasn't considered japanese enough and he goes on to become the most famous most talented japanese baseball player of all time so he's visiting taiwan and they're all super excited about it and there's just this weird duality going on. We want to claim this guy as a Chinese star, as a perfect example of what Chinese young, Ch- the Chinese youth can achieve, the Chinese post-war youth, right, can achieve. But of course, to your average Taiwanese baseball fan, the fact that he's a baseball superstar, the fact that he plays for the best team in Japan, which of course means that this is this is the gold standard. None of that's escaping the local Taiwanese population, right? Um, but uh, and so the government has to kind of trying to play both sides of it at once um and he and and he's this huge huge celebrity you know as an aside really quickly then the thing about american baseball players some of this has been exaggerated but some of it has not been exaggerated at all there's the story that i think is probably true but it's, it's been exaggerated uh who was it i don't know if it was randy bass one of the american players turned their bat upside down and held it at the thick end just to demonstrate how impossible it was that they were going to get a, a hittable ball. Um, because what, what would happen is he had the single season home record for a long time until it was eventually um, uh, uh, beaten by someone from the Dominican Republic in the, in the early 2000s. And a couple of times in the 80s, these American players were very, very close to beating it. And suddenly when they were two home runs away from the single season record, they were getting walked constantly. Suddenly, they became Barry Bonds. They just couldn't buy a strike, and, and the most controversial example of this was, um, uh, I think it was Randy Bass who was playing against a team coached by uh, Osaraharu, um, <laughs> and nobody would throw him, nobody would throw him a strike. And and uh, and th- what I love about the story, although it's, it, it turns out that uh, there is an assistant coach who was. Who was saying he would fine players if they threw per strike or something. The truth is, Osara Haru, I don't think anybody ever seriously thought that Oh told people not to throw strikes because he didn't need to. You know? Like, if you're a 24-year-old relief pitcher, do you want to be the guy that gave up the home run
1: <laughs> the, no. to a
0: foreigner that dethroned the biggest legend in your game? You know? Mm-hmm. So he's a, And already in the 60s when he's visiting Taiwan, he visits Taiwan later, he, he brings that legend with him. Like, everyone in at least all the baseball fans in Taiwan, which is a big chunk of Taiwanese people, they know exactly what a big deal this guy is, and so this kind of attempt to portray him as like, oh look, guys, here's a Chinese guy doing well abroad in Japan. It's kind of like, yeah, we we know who he is. you know. It's kind of the, that's kind of the reaction, you know.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, we we could go on, and and um, I I, I uh, had intended to ask you about the Hongye team, but you you talked about that a little bit, and I don't want to take up. Uh, too much more of your time. But I I do want to encourage people um, that this is an incredibly uh, rich uh, discussion of identity done in a very nuanced and sophisticated way uh, that befits uh, clearly the complicated uh, nature of identity within Taiwan. Um, So I I, want to encourage people to read it. And and then I want to ask you one final question if you have time, John, which is the last question I ask everyone, which is what do we have to look forward Uh, to next? What are you currently working on?
0: Well, I'm working on a couple of articles. I actually would like to write one on Osara Haru and kind of urbanization in post-war Japan and the development of a modern Japanese baseball game as a kind of a cultural experience. Um, And I might try and put that in Nine, which is a great journal if if people who are listening who aren't familiar. um, Nine, all capital letters, is is a great journal on baseball history and culture. I'm trying to put something together on esports, which is something I've been interested in for years now. Um, you have professional video game players, particularly in Korea and East Asia. And then, like, you know, so many of us have all these things spoiling. I actually, my second book is well underway in terms of getting it researched and written, is actually about American Catholic missionaries in southern China in the interwar period. Um, so a little bit different from the baseball. So I don't I don't know if that book will get me onto this, this particular podcast. Um, but the identity stuff that if if you pick up the book and read it, um you know, my interests are still driving me there. So, but instead of, instead of baseball, it's a different type of religion. It's Catholicism. So that's that's the next book.
1: Well, there there is a new books in Asian studies too, which they'll probably cross <laughs> this this interview as well. Um, but I'm certain that that uh, anyone talking about uh, may, what might be the two of the biggest religions in that part of Asia. <laughs> Thank you uh, very much for joining us, John. We've been speaking with John Harney. He's the author of Empire of Infields, Baseball in Taiwan and Cultural Identity, 1895 to 1968, out with University of Nebraska Press. Uh, Thank you for joining us, John.
0: Thanks so much, Keith, it was a pleasure.
1: And thank you all for listening.